episode of Free Wise DMs, the podcast where three dungeon masters have been doing this for <laughs> way too long. Talk about all the things we do to try to make our games as good as they can be. I'm Thorne, and I'm joined by Tony. But you're gonna have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're gonna have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil. Or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Wow. That is like the, I don't know who that is, but that should be the theme song for 5th edition D&D. Yeah. <laughs> it's uh, Dylan. Bob Dylan. Oh, is it? Damn. Got to serve somebody. Yeah. That's a good one, man. It sounds good. Right? For all you guys about to graduate high school, there it is. There you go. <laughs> Welcome to the workforce. Yeah. You have to serve somebody. Maybe yourself if you're very good. Yeah, and it is what 5th edition D&D, many of the classes are all about. So that's why today's episode, we are talking about patrons. The people you have to serve to get your powers in D&D. Warlock patrons, but also clerical deities, paladin deities, any other class that has someone they have to go to to get their powers we're going to talk about that today and like what happens if they don't maybe do what the patron said they have to do and do they keep the powers or not and what what kinds of revenge or punishment might a patron meet out and what kinds of revenge or punishment might you know frankly modern players be okay with and what fits for the modern game all of those topics and more today in this episode on patrons and this is comes to us again from a reader question this question came in from the three wise dms what's your problem field if anyone listening here has a question you'd like to hear us cover on the show please you can send it into three wise dms at gmail.com or go to our website and enter it in the three wise dms what's your problem field our website's three wise dms.com or just shoot it over to us on facebook twitter instagram we're very active in all those places and that is exactly how we got today's topic the subject, I don't have the name of the list of the listener, but if you'd like to drop us a line, we'd love to know who asked this. Class patrons, how do you handle patrons that gift powers to PCs, like for classes such as paladins, clerics, and warlocks, or boons given as part of a deal with some higher-powered being? What do you do if, say, a cleric of a god of law starts doing chaotic, unlawful things? How do you create a patron for a character that wants to multiclass into warlock, paladin, or cleric? In other words, they're taking some kind of patronage halfway through their career. How do we handle these things? And uh, so, guys, I know some of us have been doing it for a while with previous editions, some of us just with 5e, but how have you handled these things in the past? Well, in the past, like 2e, for example, 1 and 2e was extraordinarily unforgiving. Mm. You're a paladin. You did something bad. Sorry about your luck, buddy. You're a fighter. And that's just <laughs> the way that went. Not so much anymore. So I guess at the beginning of the campaign, you want to establish when a god's giving out their powers or a patron of any form – is a recipient like Black Adam where they can get these powers and they cannot be taken away. Like Black Adam could be like freaking wrecking Egypt and the gods are like, hey, we said he has our blessing. Sorry. Like that's <laughs> no refunds. Or is it like Thor's hammer where you're constantly striving to deserve to have the powers that you've been given? Those are, those are two great examples, Tone, because that's kind yeah. of the, that's the giant seesaw. nerd. No, that's the seesaw that it kind of goes off of, right? Whether, because that's the argument you find online too, is whether these things that I've learned, let's say I'm a warlock and I've learned these spells, I now have that stuff. I might have paid some price for it, but I now have the merchandise, as it were, as opposed to something like, let's say, paladin, especially like you were saying way back in the day, paladins. But I would even argue now, currently, 
And that's kind of what we're going to get into. But I have absolutely been starting to play with it pretty heavily in the Curse of Strahd campaign with the whole Amber Temple, Dark Gifts stuff that was going on, especially with Chris's character, Sir Scar, the Paladin. Yeah, because Sir Scar actually lost some power for a session or two, didn't he? Yeah, so I was playing, because again, we're going to get into this a little bit, because this this is one of those things that can go real wrong real quick for you. I definitely knew the, the player I was playing with, so I knew Chris was into narrative stuff, into redemption arcs, into oh crap moments. So he would kind of trust the DM enough, as we say. But I still played a little bit kid gloves. I uh, I could have definitely done it a lot harder, but I like the idea of a little bit of randomness in it with certain dice rolls and saves every day to see if the temptation was growing in him. It's funny because it is one of these things that, you know, there's several things in 5th edition and even starting in 4th edition where you kind of feel like Watsy looked at the old school D&D and was like, you know, that's not fun for players. Let's wind it back. And I think patron stripping abilities is one of the big ones. Because, you know, like Tony said, second edition, first edition paladin, if you sinned, if you were not that paragon of godly virtue, uh uh-uh, you lost everything. All the stuff, all all your paladin benefits were gone. And like you said, you were a fighter. And like, that was a big step down because the paladin had a lot more ability than a fighter. You had been doing that stuff to get greater power than than your peers. And now you lose it all, and you're a fighter of equal level, which means you've also lost a bunch of XP, I believe. So I think the Paladin had a harder XP chart. Well, actually, you would have lost. Let me get super technical here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you deviated from your alignment in the earlier editions, you'd be stripped of a level anyway. So oh, first you yeah. get punched in the face, and it's like, okay, you're not lawful good. You're lawful neutral. Then you'd have to convert on the, from the Paladin chart to the fighter chart for where your experience lands. Okay. The, the difference there is clearly that the the fighter was more of a basic class. You lost all these benefits, but now in 5e, it's kind of like saying, "All right, you really screwed up. I'm making you and stuffing you in another character class. How do you like that?" Yeah. Like, well, yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's, yeah. A, it's it, there's a lot more that goes with it, especially in in yeah, because that's this is something that we did a lot in earlier editions. I had no problem in earlier editions saying, hey, you sinned against your god. You're not following tenets of your god, cleric. You lose your shit. You, you're not regenerating spells anymore. He, your god's not empowering you anymore. Like, I felt like that was part and parcel of the role play of the game. I felt like it was fine. I felt like could because to me, your class abilities in classes that were tied to a religion or to a patron, they came from that individual. And if you didn't follow those rules, you lost those abilities. And that was just part of playing the character. And it's not really seen that way anymore, in part because I know, like, I can see the Internet message boards now. Like, I've seen the Facebook discussions about basically, you know, players lamenting their asshole DM who just stripped them of power for what they thought was no good reason. Like, there's a lot of interpretation. <laughs> oh, in that. that sweet alignment argument. We can never escape it. No, you never. Well, that's, you're right. It absolutely comes in here. It seems like the the baseline in 5e and even in 4e, is your alignment does not dictate your powers. You get the stuff you get, and the DM's going to punish you. Well, one, you know, we're not sure we we approve of DM punishments to begin with, and two, it's not, not going to strip your powers. That seems to be the way it works today. Well, for example, if a cleric, for example, was uh, a lawful good cleric, let me use a really basic example, and they started, started handling things in clearly not a lawful good way, like not even like debatable. They're like <laughs> neutral on a good day. I think ideally I'd handle that with a story answer and saying you're more drawn now to this deity 
give them an opportunity to convert, or maybe you say, okay, maybe you should advance as far and as cleric as you intend to. Maybe you'd like to change classes and also still convert your religion so that's more fitting with the way your character's running. Yeah, I um, I think I, I like that, Tony. I would even add to it a little bit because I don't have an issue with, because for me, and we've talked about this a lot, and I think Thorne and I are in, are in pretty good agreement because we like this idea, but things like Warlock especially, because the whole idea of that class, why you're a Warlock and not a Sorcerer or a Wizard or a, or a Cleric or some other Druid, some other Spellcaster, is because you made a pact where you literally have two pages in the player's handbook that say, here's your possible patrons that you made a pact with, you know, Constantine style. You made a deal. Now, it could be an easy deal if it's somebody from the Feywild, right? Like Phineas, for instance, maybe, who knows? Maybe it's some sort of, you know, weird Fey patron that has weird ideas, you know? Or a great old one, you have become, you've made a pact with Cthulhu, or you made a pact with Asmodeus, right? Like, that should matter. And I like your idea with the story focus thing. I would even go further where I think that if you're going to go down the road of if you want to start to play with stripping powers or things are starting to get dicey with your patron, have the player have a level of agency in it that they are kind of it's like we talk about with traps. They're walking into it. They're aware. So you give mm-hmm. them these little nudges, kind of like what I was just saying with Sir Scar, giving these nudges that, okay, you did something and this could turn bad, but not an immediate, okay, and now you are evil and you have no powers and you're that, you know, like have a level of allow the story to build, allow it to give you adventure fodder for your redemption arc or whatever it might be, or their complete change to a different patron. It makes me think real quick of the, uh, because this is very 5e and very modern D&D in a way, but the Critical Role cast, their warlock, Ford, originally had this patron who was like Leviathan, in essence, and actively denied this patron. And Matt Mercer, the DM, started to strip him of his powers. And he realized this, and he started to have this whole dark night of the soul, what do I want to do? And it turned into him multiclassing into Paladin because he took on a different deity. And it was awesome story. I mean, it was it was a whole arc. It was building. It was very player-driven. Uh, and I think that's like a, a place you could kind of shoot for, have the player be driving that story. And you're, in essence, working with them behind the scenes without them maybe knowing that. <laughs> You know, I think there's a part of this discussion we miss. There's something I actually do try to deal with when I talk about when I when I get patrons involved in the game. It comes up with God and Afwa. It even mm. comes up in Phineas's design, where Phineas is my warlock character who serves this this fe, this fey lord who's sort of based on the the man with the thistle down hair from um, Jonathan Strange and Mister Norrell. If anyone's read that, what does the patron actually get out of the service? Mm. That's the big thing that we don't always answer because that tells you how is the patron going to react to what the player does or doesn't do. Now, if the patron is, say, spreading spreading influence, like Adonath was doing, the more people who feed him, it, yeah, definitely in it, the more people <laughs> the, the more people who know about it, the more power it gains, closer it can get to waking up. 
Now, Phineas's patron, where it's that Fey Lord, he basically has people he doesn't like. And Phineas's job is to go go ruin their lives. He's the guy who goes and, like, gets them into trouble, like, cheating on their wives and seducing their wife and getting them all kind of mixed up. Or, in this case, goes to Barovia and tries to turn Barovia into what he thinks is probably the least comfortable it can be for Strahd. Which may or may not be right, but that is Phineas's goal. He is yeah, trying to mission, basically... Yeah. He's trying to make a topsy-turvy world in Barovia a little bit. So in my mind, those patrons want those things for those reasons. The Fae patron has a grudge against someone who rubbed him the wrong way, and he sent Phineas to go bear out the grudge. And Godanathwa has warlocks serving it to spread its fame and defeat its souls. Those are what they're getting out of it. So that's why they give the powers. The powers are there to enable you to go give them those things. So if you know what the patron gets, and if what the patron gets is bigger than just, hey, you did what I said, well, then it doesn't really matter because just having you out there with my powers is maybe spreading my influence somehow. However, if your patron of what they get is, no, you're going to do this thing for me or you're going to serve me like, like Phineas is and Phineas were to turn against him, I would expect there to be some comeuppance. Maybe it's not stripping powers, although it could be with the way Phineas's backstory is, but maybe someone they're sending assassins. Maybe they're starting to mess with the powers. Maybe Phineas is starting to get hit by weird spells while he sleeps or something. Mm. Like I would expect something to go on there if he's not serving that if he's not serving that patron because what that patron expects and gets is service. So I think it comes down to you got to know if you're going to play this angle, you have to have it figured out in your world. What does the patron get from the warlock service and why are they giving them the power? And then that tells you, well, hey, do I strip powers if the warlock doesn't follow, or what else do I do? I kind of want to look at what a real fall from grace would constitute. I have to agree. There's going to be some cases where there needs to be consequences. For example, if I'm playing a lawful good uh, knight of the gold dragon and, uh, you know, now all of a sudden, like five games down the road, I'm playing more like lawful evil. Um, Now, there should be a story set of reasons that this has occurred from. Uh, like perhaps like there was a seduction, perhaps he was tempted by dark power, perhaps he fought the way this king he was serving this entire time was complete BS. There has to be other mechanics in there, different you know, like blocks in the road before you go to lawful evil, unless you just snap one day and go like, you know, a complete serial killer. You go Joker zero to 60. But if you were a knight in the order, then yeah, 100%. There are other knights in that brotherhood that would want to would want to freaking hunt you down and take your ass out. That that's without a doubt. Like Brother Maynard in the Woodstock Wanderers, that's how uh, Sir yeah. Morton got out to Brother Maynard. Not to go take him out, but Sir Morton's job was to go find out why is he off the res and bring him back if you can, and eventually you guys killed him. Yeah, they'd have they'd have to absolutely bring him into stand trial if it's mm-hmm. a lawful good order. Yeah, I will say, uh, Thorne, that's a, that was a really good point, uh, and I think it it does go for some discussion. It's that idea of when we're talking patrons or deities, because a deity, in a in a sense, is a patron, at least in my sense, because yeah, if you, I, I would agree. Yeah. yeah, if you completely, you know, deny this god in in this world where magic is gifted to mortals, well, there's probably going to be you're not going to be drawing on that energy anymore necessarily. So. But yeah, one thing, what does the patron want, right? And if it's something like very specific, like I made a deal, I want your soul and you get this power. And then if you want some more power, we can talk more or something. Who knows, right? Now you can go find me other souls. I don't know. (laughs) But then also, this also plays into even with those big ones, like something like a great old one, Gadanathwa is a great idea, is a great uh, example. I mean, because 
this thing is so beyond first it's a child in essence and yeah it's really right and it's so beyond our idea of anything that it's not going to power just kind of goes from it almost like it's just part of its nature that you can draw on this power now but then you can play with that stuff like i wouldn't play with patron stuff you know in the first tier first to fifth level because you're you're nobody but once you start amassing power wealth fame notoriety whatever now I'm going to take notice because now your voice is a lot louder and it's cutting through the din of all my other, you know, worshipers or whatever it might be. So let's let's break that down a little bit because I have in my mind what are some potential patron trade-offs, right? And they mean different things. So you made a really good point, Dave, when you mentioned that, okay, so what if the patron expects your soul at the end of the deal? The classic devil's bargain that right. you get Supernatural and Constantine and Bibli- and I don't know, not exactly the Bible, but other you know, <laughs> Christian sources. That traditional trade-off, I'm giving you this thing for your soul. Yeah. Now, that is okay. In that case, well, the devil got their soul. They're getting their soul in the end. Yeah. So I don't think they're going to come in and take your power. They've given you your power. They get your soul. Done and done. Now, mm. you might piss them off and they come fuck with you in some other way. But to me, that's a done and done deal. So that is not... The patron doesn't take their power back in that case. With the deity, think of different ways this could be. Now, the deity may be having you on on the planet. Your job is to proselytize and turn converts for that deity. And if you aren't observing the faith, you're not proselytizing, then that deity might take your powers back. Because what the deity gets out of it is that you're supposed to go spread the faith. However, if the deity's point of view is more that I'm investing you with my power so everyone can see how great I am through you, they maybe don't because if they take their powers back, they don't get that reflected. They don't get that, that, you know, good branding essentially. Right. So those are different. And that's what I mean. Like there's different ways, there's different things these patrons can get out of it that change how you're going to want to interact with your players. And it's kind of in some ways easier if you just do the ones where it's like, it's cut and dry. Cause I never have to take away your power and deal with this. On the other hand, if you have the time and you have the patience and you have the player, it can get very interesting to get into the more interactive deals of, okay, I want you to go bring me a soul or something. And maybe then you're going to juice the power a little bit to make their above normal to make it more worthwhile and include the risk of them losing their base powers to make it more risky. That can be fun. It can be a lot of fun. It's a deeper thing, but it's like, you know, it's, it's do you want to get into it? Because there's also a whole lot of extra work you're doing there. You're now playing a lot one-on-one with one player, which you got to replicate between your other players. I cannot have that individual character relationship with all seven of my Woodstock Wanderers players. <laughs> it's not going to work. I can't fit seven side stories in. So sometimes I make the choice of I'm not going to do that because I can't give everyone that attention. I'm not going to give it to one person, not to everyone. But that's just, you know, just the different ways those deals can be made can dictate how, how this interaction might happen. One example where a character was given powers beyond class. Like we're talking about specifically class powers. Yeah. But uh, in in the 4E campaign, Cassidus was worshiping Vecna and he was a wizard and he developed a pact with him. So the way this worked was, it's not that unsimilar what you're doing in your campaign yeah. with Woodstock. Actually uh, very similar. He would sacrifice X amount of levels of magical items because everything was leveled in 4E. And he would then gain powers accordingly. Now, I had tenants that I had to uh, adhere to or my powers would dip. For example, revealing secrets. Big no-no. Like, that's a <laughs> real thing. 
be like, we're Cassidus. Oh my God, you're shot. You're bleeding. I ain't telling you nothing. Like, you know, I don't <laughs> tell you where I got shot. No way. Um, but he kept stockpiling that. But if I ever cross Vecna, and I eventually did cross Vecna, he did yank my powers. He, those ones. Those were extra, but you're, those were extra class level, but you're right. That's where this can go if you want to get deep into it. And that was a game where I played with this kind of stuff a lot. Because it's funny, because with you, I played with the Vecna patron with you, and you got into it, and we got into it together. And as we said, this that whole Cassidus thing turned out really well. We both had a lot of fun with it. There was another player in that game whose character died and he wanted to come back in as a warlock. Or I think, I guess, it might have just been that he wanted to come back in as a warlock to swap characters, which I was fine with. He's like, okay, I'm taking the Infernal Pack. I'm taking the Devil Pack. I'm like, great. You have a deal with the devil. Let me tell you about your deal and this devil you're dealing with. He's like, no, I don't. I, he didn't like it at all. He hated the idea. Mm-hmm. He's like, I just want to play a warlock with an infernal pact. I don't actually want to worship the devil. When I hear that, I just hear a bunch of contradictory words. Because to me, having an <laughs> infernal pact means you've made a deal with the devil, specifically. But from the player's point of view, he was a very mechanical player. He didn't want that weight. He didn't want to play a devil worshiper. Like, flat out, like, that was a deal breaker for him. So he wound up going another way with it, and it, he didn't like it. Like, that actually caused friction and a negative experience for him, and for me, I would say, because I tried to do that with a player who didn't want to do it. So there's kind of these two sides to this. You kind of got to get you got to get the player buying and interest if you're going to do it. Absolutely. You can't. It, it, that comes back for everything we, everything we talk about always comes back to you kind of have to know who you're playing with in this way. You can't just go rolling in. Except I have two points here. One, my point where I did just roll in, because in some ways we were talking about it in our little pre-show warm-up that we do, that the Slaver's Bay, the collars in a way, were, and and in essence, your uh, servitude to the Domina uh, to become the Umbra, her secret, uh, you know, secret elite force, as it were, was kind of a patron deal. And it was a no, it was, it was a... <laughs> Yeah, like it was it was forced upon you. You woke up with these collars on. So I definitely and we've talked about this at length, you know, but you can go heavy handed. You should with you're going to do that. You should probably have a way that that's going to be a temporary thing where it's not just a well, you have these collars for the rest of the campaign. But this is just a starting point, you know, kind of like a yours. You've woke up in prison idea. Um But with that, so that's one point. The second one, it's making me think, because if we really go deep, so everyone talks about stripping powers from, you know, your your warlock, you get power stripped because when you cleric, you get power stripped. But let's take warlock, for instance, every level you're learning some new spells, every level you can swap out a spell that you didn't know before. So let's say my warlock Joe, who made an infernal pact with Asmodeus for his soul to learn the powers to do something that he needed to do at the time, whatever it was, right? He needed to pay his rent. So Asmodeus gives him some kind of like conjuration can, can trip, right? Where he can make money or something. So he's got his soul now for that power. What about second level, third, fifth, 10, 15? Where where are those coming from? And have you ever played with? I can think of it in in terms of a hypothetical, but have you have, have you played with it where you have made the person in essence the way the fighter has to train, you know, or the monk has to go learn the new roundhouse kick, you know? 
have, where the warlock has to kind of keep giving of themselves, very Call of Cthulhu style. You want to know about the Book of Ebon? All right. <laughs> Where's your sanity <laughs> points, right? Well, the player really has got to be into that, honestly. I think that you don't want to be in a situation where one player has got a character where they got all these neat abilities where they have to sell their soul for. And the other one's like, yeah, I'm a barbarian. I came out of the woods uh, and I trained with an axe for like two months and I'm, I'm really tough now and I'm furious. Like that's that's where yeah. it gets tough. I, I would yeah. really, when I think of Warlock, I'm thinking more a little bit like Spawn where the devil's like, well, here you go. Now, with the Thorns point, yes, if you're in a fertile Warlock, like from 4E, yeah, you are an Infernal Warlock. You didn't, Unless you have a really incredibly creative reason why. Are you getting this power from a relic or something? Because that tells me your powers are coming from the Nine Hells. So in some degree, you're paying patronage to a yeah. devil down there. Um, as far as giving up their soul, uh, I mean, yeah, yeah, I would have to say this is, this is a terrible thing to say in this kind of situation because it's, it's so severe and final. But you do have to trust your DM. That's a story point. Like, am I really going to yank your soul and keep it in hell? And be like, ah, ha, ha, you have a 19th level character. And now I'm not letting her adventure. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. But afterwards, your happy ending. Your happy ending is your soul winds up in hell, no matter what else you did. I think, I think you do it that way. Uh, no, my answer to that is that warlock needs to... And I've actually becoming bit, very bigger on, like, uh, something we do, uh, seen in Chris's game that I think works out fantastic is, every, like, periodically every character has a game focused on them. Yeah. There's a lot of good reasons for this, yeah. especially, like, you're building, you know, the relationship between the character. Well, why are we friends? Well, my uncle, the Dark Lord, would murdered my father, and these guys helped me track him down and, and get an exact revenge. So, yeah, I mean, like, now I'm in. So when you need to go find the Dragon Orb, I got you, man. Like, I'm here for you. I won't forget that. But these are, like, kind of, like, you can recycle these different character-based stories, not in every game, but, like, maybe different tiers in your game. Yeah. So at the end, like, towards the retirement, it's like, okay, so the warlock sold her soul to Baphomet or one of those other charming uh, devils, like Malach in in the sixth uh, circle of hell lord we gotta get it back what's that gonna look like are we gonna go down there and start kicking over tables or are we gonna pull in like, captain jack sparrow and get the signatures of 30 other poor bastards to overturn this what's it look like well and that's that's a great point and but you both made great points because like yeah it's like if you're if you're trading souls or something for power what do you have to give up every level and how do you accelerate that? And then what do you do about it in the long run? And I think for the purposes of D&D, for the most part, I think you kind of do the big give in the beginning to make the deal. And then I have not played where I've made them give up something every level for the reason Tony just brought up. Yeah. You know, okay, I'm a warlock. I have great power, which I get by selling souls to a demon every level. Well, I'm a bard. Doot, doot, magic flute. <laughs> All my stuff comes from playing dope tunes, man. And yeah, right. Chicks. <laughs> like, I mean, it, or it, any it, life form. Wizard's just looking over, like, bro, you could have just gone to school. Like, like yeah, we're just like, we're just like, we're just like, on the library card. <laughs> yeah, just use the arcanum, man. Just open a book every now and then, dude. And that is, that is fundamental to this conversation because one of the things in fifth edition, unlike second edition, which we talked about, second edition, the paladin had a lot of restrictions and a lot of risks because he had a lot of cool powers the fighter didn't. 
you could argue the fighter was still cool in his own way, but the paladin got access to a whole other world of things the fighter didn't. Even the cleric didn't. Like, that was a unique class that you got because you agreed to toe the line on this moral code. In 5th edition, everyone's cool. Everyone's got their own stuff. There's some things only warlocks get, and there's some things every class only gets. But for the most part, they're all pretty equal, you know? Ranger notwithstanding, maybe. Ah, Aragon, I'm sorry. No, I'm swearing... On 3WD, that I am going to build a ranger character for one of our games. Well, and they have play him through or her through. It for, would fit that Celtic game I've been talking about. It would really fit that Celtic game. I'll, I'll play at least 10 levels of it. <laughs> but so that is, and that's kind of an argument against doing this kind of stripping power thing in 5th edition because it is like, well, why do I have to give up all this to get my powers when his powers are really just yeah. as cool and he did nothing for it? You know, the barbarian, what's the barbarian? The barbarian's just too angry to die. Like, that is the only thing he's got going for him. Like, all Unless I have the hypertension. to really pissed. That meme with the dude with the mic stand in the yeah. <laughs> No, and that's a great point, Thorne. Yeah, because of that, because of the change where it's homogenized to a degree where everyone gets cool, shiny toys each level. And that's what I was saying. If you are, if you do want to play this and you are in 5e right now and you want to play with this, Try to make it where it becomes, like th- Tony said, story-driven or and especially character-driven. The character has decided to start to go into, you know, forbidden texts. They have decided to make packs or deals. They have decided to do something themselves. They've walked into the trap knowingly. And then you can play with it more because then I think the player is more willing to, at least in my experience, more willing to play along as long as you're not too heavy-handed with it, with starting to, things are on the fritz a little bit. I'm not sure where I'm heading at this point. Maybe it leads into a multi-class because of that. What do you mean, with with Scar? I'm using Scar as the, yeah. as the example currently, because he's our most recent one, you know, that I played with. You know, I'm playing with some, that game, I, I, I am playing with a lot of things. That just not all of them have come fully to fruition, because some of them are, kind of like thoughts in the in the future. But, you know, I have ideas about Phineas that are going to come come out. Some have come out already. Benriz, I have some stuff that's been playing that I've been dropping these breadcrumbs, but it, it's kind of a matter of when do you, when does the reveal? Oh, it's all yeah. about baby Walter. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is actually a little, yeah, this is a little, this is different. This is a real... This is a real experiment. This is a real DM experiment with my real god of death stuff going on here. Uh, no, it's just a uh, real mystery, real uh, turn of a little little trick turn, little little reveals that. Yeah, like, I mean, here I feel uh, like you were very brave because this character is being played by your girlfriend's mom. Oh yeah, no, and that's <laughs> the thing. Like I know that Bethel will be like, in the end, we'll go with it, right? Like, what could go wrong? <laughs> How many DMs? Okay, so she's not your mother-in-law technically, but how many DMs are go out there and do the DM experiment with their effectively mother-in-law's character? Yeah, that's it's right. It's a very ballsy move. That's the rock and roll DM. That's the kind of lifestyle you have to live if you want to be the <laughs> rock and roll DM. <laughs> so I do want to go back to so as we said that we're talking about this whole idea of okay, so why does a warlock lose their powers or a cleric lose their powers when a bard doesn't? If they if they if they transgress in the last two times I've done things like this, I've actually tacked them not to class powers, but to additional powers. 
Cassidus with his learning of all those extra abilities and, and all the extra stuff from Vecna. And really, Bonnie, uh, Bonnie's character, um, uh, Ojin. Ojin, thank you. I, went, yeah. I almost said little one. I'm like, no, that's the wrong campaign. This <laughs> is what happens when you game with the same people across different campaigns. But uh, so Ojin has become a warlock of God Anathwa with other additional abilities. In a world where there are other characters running around with these additional abilities at different levels. Yeah. So that's kind of in the same boat. In in fifth edition, where the class powers are more or less equal, so you're kind of just really being a dick to one player and not a dick to another. I think it's better when you do it with additional abilities, tackles, things like the Gadanafwa powers, where she can like summon tentacles to eat people, or she got an extra, she got like a free, she got some free warlock stuff with that. Cassidus did the same thing. Cassidus started following Vecna. Uh, the wizard Cassidus started following Vecna. He got some free warlock stuff. That's, that's a good idea. Wasn't it, though? So that's no, it's a good point. Where, yeah, that's maybe where this stuff plays best in the newer editions of D&D. Because they don't have that built-in um, asymmetry, where second edition, first edition built in the idea that, okay, we're going to have a harder to roleplay character. And that went beyond even the Paladin. There was also the Cavalier was the same way. It was really cool oh, fighter kit that if you didn't play the ultimate stuck-up noble bastard, like, you didn't have to play evil, but you you had to look down on people and you had to defend your honor at all costs or you lost all his cool abilities. His abilities were like, he got like a free mount, he got he got all sorts of cool stuff for being a Cavalier. Like, there were things he like that. He just couldn't retreat. But yeah, 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 you could not retreat. You had to fight to the, to the death for your honor. Oh, man. So like, in second edition, they played with that asymmetry where you could have a high-risk, high-reward character, effectively. Fifth edition does not do that. Fifth edition's characters, at least the book characters, are pretty much even. You don't have many of them where you can go higher-risk, higher-reward in this sense. It's like the role-play risk and reward. So if you're going to do this kind of patron stuff where the patron gets really involved, I think you have to do it around giving extra favors, giving extra abilities, but then also the ability to lose those and I would say lose your base abilities too. Like you, you got to have some risk and reward. It's not just yeah. that you lose the extra stuff, but you also wind up a little further back than the other players because you violated. I think you can play in that area. I'll say what I did with it in a way, because I didn't give additional powers. Uh, well, I mean, the Dark Gifts gave additional powers, right? But for yeah. instance, yeah, how yeah. I built this out was I made it a, a, I did not make it a very hard saving throw to begin with, to begin, because like I've said before, I wanted this idea of this growing temptation. I don't like the idea of these these hard shifts. I don't think it it's r realistic at all. But so... I made it so it wasn't wildly difficult, but each failure of it would make it more difficult. But then if there was a failure, you weren't just stripped. Like Scar lost with th that day, he lost half his spell slots. That's all, yeah, right? Slots half his, which is is enough, right? It's a good slap yeah. on the wrist. But it wasn't a complete, you have nothing, right? But I would play with things like that or maybe take things from the character that are more geared towards what they're getting from their god. So for instance, like a paladin, take their divine sense away maybe, right? Maybe take all, take away, like they try to do lay on of hands and they only have so much of it that they, you know, but then all, open the door to them that there is the path for redemption to happen. You know, you have to give at least the possibility of an out somewhere. Or somewhere where they can go that they can, you know, reclaim this power or find new power. One of the two, you know, but not just to leave them out there. Well, you screwed up, you know, suck, you know, save or suck kind of stuff. 
Yeah, I agree. Because when you were saying that before, and I started kind of thinking in my head, well, what does losing powers look like? And I think you're right. It's like you lose spell slots, or you maybe lose top-level spell slots. Like, you know, like what I would probably do is if, if I had a paladin who was falling out of favor with their god, I like what you just said, that, hey, maybe their lay on hands doesn't give them as much back as they think. Right. Right. Maybe their divine smites, maybe the die falls down one. Because the point isn't to punish overly. The point is to give the paladin a clue that they're off the path. Yeah. You know, so maybe they lose their highest level spell slots for a day or something. And then you need, you're right in that you, you need that path for them to find out what you have to communicate. The paladin has to, it has to be communicated to the paladin through the gameplay, what they did wrong and what they need to do to get back on the track and what their choices are. Because if, if otherwise it just feels like, oh, you're just screwing with the paladin. You know, yeah. you got to have that kind of back and forth. And like Tony said, it should be hard, you know, driven through the story itself so they know. So like we say, you say it several times so the person hears yeah. it. But then it's also something that they have actively taken a part in. They have had agency and said, I'm, I know that this is risky, but I'm going to do it because I need to for whatever reason, you know. Uh, and then it plays a little, a little easier. One or, one two, or one two. <laughs> Look, if you're a character, you one. character one two is fine. Yeah, a little different, a little different. <laughs> I wouldn't say that Cassidy necessarily needed to follow Vecna, but you know, Vecna was interesting. Well, in that situation, it was one of those charming, the world could be ending scenarios. And I looked around at my party and said, we're fucked. I mean, honest to God, I had I didn't have a lot of faith in these guys. I have to be I heard anybody's feelings looking back on that party, but I'm like, okay, it's time for me to start breaking the glass and doing the drastic stuff because you know, I mean, my ranger in that party could have found a tree, and that was about it. And that was before we even got to five. He had had those problems. <laughs> so I mean, th that was an extreme kind of very direct patron situation. Generally, I like to pay pay handle patrons kind of loose like they're there like when i handled uh scott's warlock in my last campaign you know he he, the, the, he was there to like provide some insight perhaps and commune periodically in things within he, his specific sphere but he was basically background stuff now like of course they go really f hard left there has to be problems back in the earlier editions you know paladins not only were awesome they had access to the holy avenger which was like the Ferrari of swords. We're, yeah, we're, and they, they got a, they got the War Horse and the Holy Avenger, which, I mean, it was a Ferrari of swords, but even more than that, like, you were super badass if you got that. Like, it was a level of power other classes couldn't get to. Yeah, that was like an Excalibur-level weapon, and it was floating around in the realm. Of course, it was super rare, but, like, that was really, a, like, the... That's what you're reaching for. Like, you're building, the, you're thinking this character out. Like, I'm going to get a character with, like, a hammer of thunderbolts or a staff of the Magi or the Holy Avenger. That's kind of that worked. But I, I would like, argue if you're a second edition DM and you had a paladin and you did not put a Holy Avenger in the game somewhere, you've kind of screwed it. I agree. Shame on you. You There's need to find a Holy Avenger in that whole game world? Uh, it's somewhere they got to have a chance to get a Holy Avenger in second edition paladin. Or like, it's just forge not, it. Yeah. <laughs> You, you right. just it's haven't like, done your job if you didn't. Lastly, I want to say that I like Dave's point on redemption. Uh, I kind of did a redemption arc a bit with Hawk because, you know, he had a moment where he saw some easy uh, money or, or powers there, and he played with that. And afterwards, he had some buyer's remorse, and he's like, what the hell did I just do? You know, whereas, like, I was taking, I'm like, hey, I'm Kanek good. No, you're Kanek neutral, leaning hard to the lower. And, you know. Yeah. 
That was the same example. What his problem was? Like, what? Why did Hawkeye get rid of his cool powers? Like, Phineas is still confused by this. Because he became what he despised the most. He's not going to fight for every man if he's, you know, possessed by two different elder gods. That was a perfect example too, where we played with some of the same mechanics and ideas, but with someone who didn't have a patron. I mean, I up until. Last game, when Hawk decided to, when you guys came back to the city of Kresk and, you know, you were kind of hanging out with them before you moved on, he went up to the pool shrine and started praying to Thor. That was the first time that I really knew that Hawk Morgan prayed to any god whatsoever in the game. And that that's me as god of the universe. Now, hang right? on, buddy. When I say I stop and I say my prayers, like was I praying to the real big guy upstairs? Like, what was he I did doing? say I, that every game. He did, but I just I always just thought it was just Hogan just saying shit to Mean Gene. Like, <laughs> you know. But, you know, it was still the same kind of thing. Like, there was there was possible risk. Not in the same way as for a paladin, but you're a barbarian. It's not going to be the same kind of risk. But it was risk in the sense of it wasn't going to take away your powers. It gave you unlimited power in a lot of ways. But what it did was it took away the very thing that made that character a hero and who they were. It took away, you know, it took away Hulk Hogan and made him Hollywood Hogan. You know, you turned heel and, you know, the heel can't win. And, yeah. and arguably had a much better storyline. Is all I'm saying. <laughs> it was, it was great. He's played all the Hogans. Next, he's gonna be have a reality show. Uh, well, uh, no, all no, the Hogans. It'll be Hawk in his retirement end uh, with the Cavani people. No, no, I'm not playing that game. I'm drawing the line there. We are not playing reality show Hogan in a game. No. (laughs) We're not playing Hogan going through a divorce, sitting on the toilet, reading the newspaper on camera. No. Hawk's just wearing like a bunch of leg braces because he can't move anymore. (laughs) It's just bad. It's bad. Too many blow decks, man. They catch up with you. I feel like my 20-year-old barbarian has gone through Hulk Hogan's, like, entire career in, like, one Ravenloft story arc. Well, it's yeah. Been, it's been hardcore. We've been ripping through this town. It's been one hell of a tour. Yeah. It's a 30-day uh, fucking tour of, uh, yeah. That's how they used to do it in the day, though, man. That's how the wrestlers used to do it. Cross country. Yeah. You know, imagine night. through the night, you know. Go to the next one. Get really wasted in the in, in the hotel between him and get back in the car and on to the next match. I'm just gonna say, like, we, I, I don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole here of our tangent, but yeah, if you watch anything like that Dark Side of the Ring or any of those shows, dude, I don't know how those dudes survived. They literally were drinking themselves into a stupor every night and then wrestling the next day. Full of booze and cocaine. I don't understand. I think the real question is, what kind of patron is Vince McMahon? Is he a devil, right? He's got to be a devil, right? What's the pact, dude? Holy crap. Well, actually... His money, fame, and glory, the Vince McMahon's got to be the devil. Back in those days, those wrestlers all got territories. And they went out there and promoted this stuff. So they got cuts of those ticket sales. So they traveled and they worked those circuits. So I want to get to two other two things I want to cover before we get to final thoughts here. One of them first is we talk a lot about redemption. What so if a character has fallen, what should that redemption arc? What should that what should they, what should they have to do to atone? How do you handle well, that? Well, I mean the punishment kind of has to fit the crime here. 
I mean, mm-hmm. like, like if we're talking to Tui, a paladin could really technically fall out of grace for an evil act. Like, what does that really look like? He told a lie. He to cover for the rogue to do something crazy or you know the rogue and him murdered somebody in a back alley and threw their body into a swamp like what are we talking about um in my one of my favorite video games of all time Baldur's Gate uh if a paladin had fallen from grace they could redeem themselves by defeating a force of evil to offset this so there was a of the largest size red dragon floating around so if you could give him the business and take him out, it's all right. It's like, we're going to sweep these sins under the rug. Okay, so you stabbed that guy and, and put him in the swamp. That, 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 no. But thank you for killing that red dragon because that did a lot of offsetting good. <laughs> I don't know that I would handle it exactly that way. I think I would keep it very specific to the redemption. When Hawk did, he had to reject the evil that he brought into himself. I mean, something bad was going to happen in 10 days, but let's be honest. Like, it it was like being in a time warp in that campaign. 10 days could put me in 2023. I mean, I was no <laughs> really immediate danger, but he had to make a conscious decision. Was he going to live his life out empowered by this evil magic, by these dark gods, and possibly take one of them with him out of Ravenloft if I could even escape? Or is he going to be the hero that he originally was or thought he would be when he came to Ravenloft. Yeah, I would say with with a redemption arc, I think you should approach it in the same way that you would approach any redemption arc in real life or in a movie or anything. The character doesn't know how what does that look like. So it has they have to they have to actively go out and try to find out. So I would say as the DM, what I did was for these two specific, the story drove it already. I already, it, it already kind of had told itself because I already had this idea that Hawk was possibly an heir to Kavan, this barbarian king, uh, you know, that for the Kavani people. And there were breadcrumbs that had been peppered throughout the game of that idea. And the idea of the one-on-one, you know, showing your 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 true strength by going one-on-one in, in a match. So we did the whole wrestling thing. And then he had the ability to make the choice, and Kavan could be able to burn the power out of him. And with Sir Scar, I mean, it wrote itself, you know. Uh, it just, it was that idea of him having to start seeking redemption, but his redemption was the redemption of his fallen order from before he was brought back as Alurid Scar when he was Alurid Gwillem, one of the Order of the Silver Dragon. So the story had already kind of told me exactly where to go with the redemption arcs. I just had to throw the uh, possibility out and the enough information that they could get a sense that I have a, the possibility of some sort of penance for this. But like uh, Scar was just trying to figure out how to do penance. He was like, uh, I'd like to stay up all night and forge a new Warhammer, right? He was he was actively engaged in his redemption arc, which was awesome. None of those things were really important in terms of the actual where I saw him going with the thing, but they all were, but it was all character driven in the same way that his fall was character driven. So it sounds like there's a couple steps though, right? There's the first step seems to be, one, you got to notify them they did something wrong which you kind of handled by having them both have kind of visions and dreams and understanding there was conflict inside. Yeah. Yeah. They both understood that. I mean, I had, I took Scar through a lot of like the big vision quest stuff with his God and the world pours and all that with Hawk. It was mainly like, uh, so you feel, uh, a tension inside of you. What do you want to do? 
But he already had kind of known that he had kind of been visited by the spirit of Kavan and stuff that had been growing uh, ever since he got the belt, the spear, the I mean, all of these things were peppering that whole trajectory. And it sounds like step two was, OK, once they realized something's wrong, they had to go find out what to do about it. They had to do a vision quest or do something where they had to figure out how do I redeem myself? That's not just handed them on several platforms. Oh yeah, no. They, it was it was a matter of they started to even Tony, you uh, Hawk started to kind of do things. You went and started to pray. You did this. You talked to the the Kavani shaman to ask about like what can you know? Is there any way that we can go past this? Is there any way I can find this again? You know. So yeah, the character is is actively seeking that out. But I would say you can easily drop breadcrumbs in there because the fall should lead you back to a redemption. I mean, it should already kind of be there because the fall came for something. Something yeah. created it. But it sounds like you you want the character to take the action of I want to find out how to redeem myself because otherwise if they just stumble into the redemption through the story. Like if they just, okay, well, I've fallen. Two adventures later, I find a dragon and kill it and do, 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 I'm clean again. There's no redemption there. You just kind of over time killed the big enough thing to kind of get your groove back. They, yeah. If they if they realize something's wrong because like there's a power dip or there's a whatever, or there's a, they're visited by their God or they get the queasiness, the uneasy feeling that won't go away. They kind of do like a vision quest or something to find out what they need to do. And then they go do the deed. They go do the seven labors of Hercules. They go kill the dragon to redeem themselves yeah. intentionally to redeem themselves. They go looking for the grail. It seems like that three steps is really kind of what makes this kind of stick when you really want to have them. Okay. You screwed up and fell. Here's how you get back. Now, maybe if falling was more rising because, you know, you were turned good when you're serving an evil deity, I guess it probably looks the same way. It's just more like the deity is more like I'm pissed at you. <laughs> yeah, now I'm like, hey, bro, what, what the hell? I thought we had an understanding. <laughs> so I, I think there needs to be certain components to this. So if we're talking not necessarily even from a powers perspective now, but we're talking about a fall, there has to be some gravity to it. Like now we're talking about Anakin who has fallen. Now, Anakin necessarily didn't lose his powers. They altered in some degree. He really, technically, if you want to get to the brass tacks, I'm not convinced Anakin was any more powerful as a Darksider than he was as the Chosen One as a Jedi, who technically wasn't granted the random master. But in that, if you were to turn around and say, if Anakin's like, well, I killed Mace Windu, how do I redeem myself? If that had happened very easily, I think the entire th point would have been meaningless. So it has to kind of go one of two ways. One, there is a redemption arc of some form that they have to work for. Uh, I, I mean, within reason. I don't depends how far you want to throw this out there. G Dave did it for me a couple games out. He didn't want to like you know. It's very easy to be like if you're playing like infrequently, you're like, oh, your redemption's coming in six months exactly that's right so yeah if it's three sessions that's like three months later <laughs> actually yeah and and with that said or is this the story of a tragedy you kind of it's gonna go one of the, it should go one of those two ways and it's completely open-ended which it could have i mean both characters could have easily just been like no you know what i'm gonna become a an oath breaker or i'm just going to accept all of this power and break strods back with my enormous muscles and take over this entire land for myself i mean that's a fucking story arc and then it who is. cares about yeah. redemption but the possibility is there and he knew the possibility of the, was there of kavan because that had already been peppered in in a way 
to tell you the truth, this whole dark powers thing fell into my lap because every single one of you took a gift and only two got the the possibility of this alignment shift. So, I mean, if the rest of the party did, I don't know if there would have been a redemption arc for some <laughs> of the other ones, you know. That Genius, story would have gone a little differently. Genius <laughs> would have been like, I'm what? Chaotic what now? That's yeah, fine. Whatever. Yeah. Well, the, the thing with this I'm is... I'm not much for labels. Yeah. <laughs> what was interesting here was we came to this temple, and it was it was on the table. This is obviously an evil temple. But they didn't say... They were very clear, like, oh, yeah, no strings attached there, buddy. You will get great whatever I'm offering. But we all kind of knew in the back of our heads that it didn't feel right, that there would be some type of repercussions. They weren't exactly being straight with us in that respect. So what, dark, malevolent entities not being completely forthcoming. <laughs> I, is that shocking? <laughs> How I, dare you, sir? How dare you? <laughs> but it wasn't like this. But the sin there, though, wasn't like he's like, hey, I'll give you giant strength. You just need to sacrifice an innocent person on this altar, and then we're cool. That's not what happened. It was a different degree True. of the the dark path. Give the path it, 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 it was backdoored. The, the the risk was definitely backdoored. So it's not like you obviously well. You obviously made a pact with the Dark Powers, since they were literally called the Dark Powers, but you weren't obviously going to change a line. I feel like I'm throwing them to us here and there, McGee. And with that, too, I mean, for the entire three sessions or so of the Amber Temple, like, I I put out there how many times that, like, this this area is a giant prison that was built. There's all these boarding rooms. There's all these things to keep these 114? You said prison and Phineas heard, you know, use car lot. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe a gun store, depending on your analogy. Whatever. I want to get to one more thing before we do the last final thoughts, which is, and it's in the uh, the last thing that our that our listener had asked about in this. How do you create a patron for a character who, that wants to multi-class into warlock, paladin, or cleric? So if someone wants to walk into one of the things, and we've talked about how that might be the way you choose to go when they fall from grace or something. Yeah. How do you go about kind of creating that and creating that interaction when someone's going into it middle of the game and you're maybe making something from whole cloth? That is uh, sort of what I did with both God and Alpha and Vector, to be honest. It's got to be, same answer as before, it's got to be story-oriented. It's kind of yeah. like a situation where I think it was Puffins Forest they did a gag about how um, the the wizard wanted to be a sword mage and he fell down a hole and he came back up or he went to be he was a sword mage and he just wanted to be a wizard and he fell out of the hole and he lost his sword and he came back and he was just using spells you know just entirely from that and everyone's like what like don't you want another <laughs> sword oh I can't use it anymore like it or something to that effect um yeah it has to definitely be if you're changing classes even even if not patron oriented there should definitely be some story elements how you trained why you did it what is your motivation and what does that character look like going forward well on top of that what do you put in the patron like what do you think makes an interesting worthwhile patron there? in the storm king's thunder i made salsadar who was basically a celestial dragon and that was who was feeding scott's character powers so here you have this character that is not really super involved in earthly things when they're cataclysmic yes otherwise 
go have fun. I'm assuming you're not making an ass out of yourself and playing with matches or in the streets. Uh, you are my agent, however, and here are your powers, and you'll continue to draw for them. But first, you want to make somebody who's interesting, reasonable backstory. And then, you know, again, what we talked about previously, maybe not looking over your shoulder every 45 minutes. Like, hey, should you be having that, like, sixth beer? you got to drive. Like, you know, <laughs> that's you want your buddy, maybe not from the person who's feeding you yeah, class abilities. Yeah, I mean, it ha- look, it's... Saying it has to be story driven is saying like it's like if if I'm driving to the mall, am I in a car? You like if you are doing something where within the story itself you are actively going to multi-class and take on a patron, how did you meet that patron? You met that patron through your adventures in the story, in the in that campaign world. So that patron is already there. So the idea of them is already there to build them out into whatever you you know type of patron they might be. Are but that's, they well, in a way, because of the way I'm thinking about it, like let's say in Woodstock Wanderers, when Beam was starting to play around with this idea because of the threats that he was seeing in the world that maybe a, more of a martial uh, bend was needed and he had visited the order of Bahamut and he was possibly thinking of multi-classing as a paladin under Bahamut. I mean, but that patron was, I mean, that's, that's a known, that's Bahamut, the platinum dragon like that. You know what I mean? But so the, the, flip, the flip side there though is like, so for instance, okay, Bonnie, uh, uh Ogin, Bonnie's character, Ogin did become a warlock and yeah. became following the patron of God and Alpha, yeah. but she actually multi-classed into a different patron before I mentioned that God and Alpha was available and talked to her and kind of we talked about well, why that would, why that would be more fun to do. So you don't necessarily, when you have a character who's like, hey, I hit level 11, I want this level to be Warlock, I want to have a Fey patron, that doesn't necessarily mean you had a Fey somewhere in the game. Well, oh, I very easily walk you into stuff that you haven't already laid down so from there, I think, you know, it's, it's you know, how do you introduce this patron that they want to have that, that fits what they want to do and still fits your story and is interesting? Yeah, I mean, that, right, that's where I, for me, if someone wants to multi-class into something like that, I, I want more like, okay, what's happening? Why? You know, not just, you know, hey, it's a cool spell or something, but like, what is happening? You know, like, for instance, she did the same thing in Storm Kings, and that built in the whole Raven Queen idea, you know? Sure. Yeah. But there was something where it was, again, character-driven and story-driven. I mean, that also depends on your players, though. We already talked about it. I had a player who wanted to do that kind of thing without having a story no. reason. And when I tried to lay a story reason on it, the player acted as if I was impinging on the player's right to play their character. <laughs> so it kind of depends on who you got. Absolutely. Like, we can say it's got to be yeah. story-driven until you have a player who doesn't want to have a story-driven character and just wants to play with the mechanics, and now you've got to decide, do I go with that, or do I not want that in my game? Yeah. yeah. Well, okay. I mean, I, I'm a pretty – I mean, I don't know if you think so. I think I'm reasonably open-minded as running a game here, and I get a little carried away sometimes with my extravagant I've only ever seen you beat a player once with, like, a stick, but, you know, that, that's okay. I'm, that I'm, was a long time ago. It was. But no seriousness, if you were to be like, I am an infernal warlock, okay, and you don't want to worship any demons or devils, nope, okay. So I'd sit this player down. So how are we going to do that? 
Like that Snickers commercial. We're not leaving this room until we figure out how to win the Super Bowl. No, I mean how we're going to get you uh, an infernal pact and it's going to make sense where the players all other around you don't groan and roll their eyes when you explain this five levels in. <laughs> Let's figure it out. Is it from yeah. an artifact? Is it an angel that used to be a devil that changed, but his powers are still rooted in that? I don't know. Let's figure this out. But it's got it's, it's got to be something that makes sense in terms of the story yeah. and the world you're in. Yeah, good point. To, to, so, Thor, in that way, if, like, let's say you had done something where you had, like Tony said, like, you sit down in the room and this. What if it had turned into something where it wasn't you had to have actively made a pact with the entity? But like Tony had said earlier, like maybe it turns into something where you stole something. You know, you stole fire from the gods in a way. Maybe. You know, and now that can pull into storylines as to now something's coming for you because you you pulled a heist on them. You know, would that have would that have been different in that way, do you think? That might have been. I did give him an option, like, okay, so maybe you're not interacting with the devil, but you sold your soul. Like, in the <laughs> years, like they sold soul idea. That might have been better. If there was someone chasing him or something, uh, that might have been a better way to go about it, actually. So that's like, that might have been more amenable to what that player wanted to play. That's true. Yeah. But for, for, for that kind of stuff, I would say if it's something where you're coming into the game the very first time and you have a patron, I usually look for the player to tell me kind of, what what the deal is like you had built out the gentleman the man with the yeah. hair pretty much I mean, completely just, so it gave me a lot to play with and maybe this is more of a, a flip around question for the player because i mean really to me if i'm coming in with that sort of thing as a player i'm going to come in with a whole backstory yeah. not only be three paragraphs but it's going to be a good three paragraphs it's yeah gonna be, it's going to be here's what it was here's why it happened and here's where i am now and it's going to cover all the bases and give you something you can just plug in and play so maybe that's just being a good player of a character who's going to pick up a patron Make it easier on your DM. Pop it in, you know, maybe give them something to work with and tell them they can tweak it to fit their world, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But that's us. We all kind of look at those types of things. We want to do that role play. We want to, you know, be the Constantine or the Hellboy or the whatever it is, you know? <laughs> that's right. My my character didn't just sell his soul to the devil. He smiled about it. I was like, I'm going to make the most of these next 60 years before I rot now. <laughs> and if I can steal my soul back, I will. I'll look for that chance later. Yeah. <laughs> he didn't get he didn't he didn't get trapped he didn't get tricked into hell he went smiling and skipping i'll figure it out later that's the story ending though i mean this person become a judge in hell or something i mean yeah. there are ways to handle this i think honestly i mean i i've done some real jerk moves as a dm over all of my years to be fair <laughs> but to be like you have a level 20 character and their end is you're like some devil's footstool that's pretty rough. Like, hey, you're, you've got 300 years in your, your sentence. Have fun, buddy. Like, that that that's a tough pill. It doesn't matter of how, how big of a dick DM are you, right? It's like, because I got to tell you, my inclination is that power that. life, you're in bad shape in the afterlife, you know? Nah, if somebody, if somebody went to a level 20, right, if they became a, literally an avatar of a god on the world, uh, on Earth, right, then... That devil is going to want them to be doing, like, you know, good. Like, when the devil comes for Constantine, he wants them because, like, he wants what he can do, you know? They want what Spawn can do, you know? Not just so you can. Constantine, they were just really looking forward to torturing him. Maybe I haven't read enough. I've read a bit of it. I don't know. I don't know. Movie or story arc? 
in the They just DC. seem to want his soul to have his soul because they want to fuck with him. DC, those devils wanted him like Trigon. Oh, he pissed in everybody's coffee. He pulled yeah. he he pulled stunts in all of them, and they were all they all wanted revenge. They're they like, wanted yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. He was not getting a generalship. He was he was he was going to be someone's toilet seat for a thousand years. They wanted yeah. revenge. Trigon's like you know what's on my bucket list? John Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> I got a couple unread Constantine graphic novels. I want to got to pick them back up. He's a great character. I love him. I love that character. I love the TV show. I hate it that they canceled it so soon. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we are, but we are getting you know, far afield now, so I think maybe it's time to wrap up. What are your final thoughts on playing with patrons and you know the characters who serve? I would say that I would keep the reins loose on this unless a character makes a really distinct and drastic decision that was a clear violation. I would not be a rules lawyer on alignment in this case, and if they were to fall from grace for whatever number of reasons, role play decision. Uh, temptation, whatever, I would punish slowly. I would provide an opportunity for a redemption arc if they were interested. I would define if this is going to be a story of redemption at that point or is going to be a tragedy. And if we're talking some long game scenario and just hypothetically, your, your character was then began their career from selling their soul to some entity for power, then I honestly could not resist the temptation to give that character a shot at retrieving their soul all the way at the end of the story uh, <laughs> to wrap it up. If that is what, I mean, what's great about how, when players talk at the table is you can just be like, oh yeah, like, yeah, I want to get my soul back. No, I want to be in hell and, you know, I want to be a colonel. Okay, well, that makes it really easy. <laughs> we will run that game. You're going to go to hell and you're going to be in the army. Fantastic. You want to get your soul back? Let me put together this module where you guys have a shot at doing that. Not a guarantee. A shot. It's going to be hard, but there let me is. ask one more thing here, just in these final thoughts. If you go down, if you have a player, a character that falls, and your deal is you want to have the patron punish him or strip him, but the character, the player, balks at that. They think that's bullshit. They don't want to deal with it. How do you handle that? Would you yield to the player and just kind of get along to get along, or would you would you hold firm and be like, no, nah, this is what happened? Um. Okay, so if you're playing a character, and I keep using the example, you're like a lawful good cleric or a knight or something like that, an extreme case, and you're caught red-handed on murder one. Like, you and the rogue kind of had, the, had this moment, some things went south, you killed somebody in the town. This wasn't like, you know, you're fighting an opponent, you didn't have to kill him. Like, this is pretty cut and dry. Then, if you're not going to deal with that to some extent... I mean, if you say, I'm not going to take your powers, they're hard against that. You know what? Fine. You've got your powers. Those knights in your brotherhood are coming for your ass. Those clerics are bringing knights from the brotherhood to come for you. Those other warlocks, you were a dark warlock, and now they can't caught you, like, helping an orphanage or some sort of crap. Like, they're, they're, they're not having that. <laughs> they know you. They're not letting this down. You're an affront to everything they stand for. Take that approach. You you come at them. Nightmares. Have all your powers. Fine. But keep looking over your shoulder. You made a lot of enemies. So the actions have consequences. Even if the consequences maybe adjust to what the player is willing to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think that that's fair. Like this stuff should not become life or death stuff when we're, when it's a game, when we're playing a game, right? It should be, especially if it's with friends and stuff. Now, for the most part, like we talked about, 
most of the times you're kind of curating a group that you want to play with and that is your kind of style and will roll with that kind of stuff. But if they don't, then okay, they don't. And you try to move on because it's a game in the end, you know, not going to be these hard and fast, you know, DMs that I read online where they're, this is not happening at my table. Okay. <laughs> cool, man. I, I, mean, tolerate that I mean, that's shit. awesome. Like, and that and a bag of, you know, 25 cents gets you a bag of chips, you know? But yeah, I would say in terms of final thoughts, though, everything Tony said, I I am in full agreement. It should be very player driven. It should be something that makes sense within the story. The story has led to, even if it's something like mine, where the story drops it in your lap, where you weren't necessarily thinking that it was going to go that way and it dropped it in my lap. So I worked with it and the players went with it. But have it be very, very character driven. But don't be afraid to to start to let them know that their actions do have consequences and just don't be too heavy handed with it. Start small, let them know, give them a chance. Just like the one ring, I always go back to this, the one ring did not immediately turn Frodo into a white, right? It took quite a while. And he had many times where he could say no to it, but it became harder and harder and harder, even though he was doing it for a good reason. For me, I would say if you have the, as far as the situation goes, where you have a player who is dead set against any consequences, well, actions do have consequences. That's really sort of the cornerstone of D&D, so some consequences. But I have bent a bit away from using powers as a way to punish players for that kind of thing, for exactly the reasons we talked about. 5e, powers aren't really, your class abilities aren't aren't really any more special just because you have a paladin class or a cleric class or something else with a patron. Therefore, you really shouldn't have more hoops to jump through to keep them than any other character. Having said that, where I do like to play with it is getting that extra stuff. You know, having Vecna as a patron, offering Cassidus new stuff. And I would actually argue Cassidus turned to Vecna before the end of the world. We remember that a little differently. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think Cassidus, when the first time I threw out a, a, a potentially a book that you probably shouldn't read, Cassidus is like, oh, okay, yeah, I'm already halfway through it. <laughs> it was so that crazy. kind of thing is where I think there's a lot more power in this, especially in the more modern role-playing games like 5th Edition. Throwing out things where okay, you can get a little extra power, but it, there's a high risk, high reward here. You know, it's you might be risking other powers. You might lose other things if you don't do what this thing asks you to. You, you're going to get tangled up in something that's going to be tricky. And to me, that's really where that kind of that interesting patron stuff lies. Extra stuff could potentially lose stuff. You're going to have to open it up to everybody to some extent, you know, because you have one player can get extra cool abilities. Well, everyone else is going to have some man going to need some opportunity to do something. So keep that in mind, too. But that, to me, is really kind of where that fits in. But I do think this extra patron-type stuff makes D&D really fun. And this is where you get, you know, we talked before about how D&D has the possibility, or any role-playing game, has the possibility to be way cooler than a video game because you can do these things that are just creative and inspirational and off the book, off of the radar of what a video game can do. This is the kind of thing that lets you get into that. So think about them. If you have a good idea or you want to play with, get into it, because I think it's some of the most fun stuff you can do. And that's it for me. Guys, had a good time talking about this. Yeah. Absolutely. Who, who knows what patrons were serving by putting out this D&D content? I guess it's Watsy. Yeah. <laughs> Probably Watsy. That's, that's the real patron. right? The there. infernal Chris Perkins. <laughs> <laughs> are they infernal or are they more fey? I don't know. Then again, with all the tentacles, maybe a great old one. Yeah, yeah. So it's quite the question. 
And thank you for all, all of you listening at home. Thanks again for joining us for another episode of Three Wise DMs. Again, if you have any questions you'd like to hear us uh, talk about, please send them over to threewisedms at gmail.com or go to our website and pop them in the What's Your Problem field. If you like what you're hearing, please give us a five-star rating in the podcast platform you're using. Leave us a good review. Tell your friends. We've been growing by leaps and bounds, and that's really because of your support. So thank you so much for doing that. That's it for this week. We'll see you next time on Three Wise DMs. Thank you.